0: So, Iqbal, shall we start? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you just shut? Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. We can do this, we can do this. Hi, I'm Azilia.
1: And I'm Iqbal, and this is the He Says.
0: She Says. They say my gaps?
2: You are now approaching <laughs> okay, okay. Bukit Pintang. This is an interchange station with KL Monorail Line.
0: Welcome to the He Says, She Says, They Say Podcast.
2: Hi, thanks. Yeah, glad to be here.
1: Okay, so (laughs) I've been wanting to do this episode. I, like, contacted Amuro, like, what, a month or a few weeks ago, talking Mm -hmm. about doing this. And so I'm really, really glad that we got everyone on board today for this episode. As our listeners may or may not know, I currently live in Texas, where the closest big city i live to is houston so that's where i go for all my halal grocery shopping that's where i go for all my barang barang asia
0: yeah sorry but how far is houston from where you are
1: about an hour and a half <gasps> which is far by malaysian standards but by yeah texas standards is really close everything's bigger in texas yeah what?
0: okay so Mira, have you been to texas before
2: my family has a close relationship with Texas because my mom did her PhD at UT Austin. Oh! oh. So I used to live there as a child, yeah.
1: Okay. You used okay. to live in
2: Austin? Yeah, in Austin. What year was this? Do you remember? Oof, this was like 1993 to 1995 or 96. Oh, dang. I was a small,
1: small child. <laughs> so were <so> we. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay so yeah i mean houston is the closest city to me and as i've been living here for the past however long and i guess as you've lived abroad amiral you've lived abroad you guys know yeah. when you start missing malaysian food the challenge of i'm not just finding a malaysian restaurant but finding a malaysian restaurant that's good right yeah yeah and that got me thinking and it set me down this journey of resentment because in houston There are an incredible amount of Vietnamese restaurants, Thai restaurants, of Cambodian restaurants. Like, you ask anyone, Hey, you want to grab a banh mi? They know what you're talking about. Hey, you want to grab some pad thai? They know what you're talking about. But if you ask them, Hey, you want nasi lemak? no one has any clue what the fuck you're talking about.
0: Yeah. Is it just in Texas alone where you can get all the ingredients and stuff? Or is it because it's geographically closer to any other state that it has a lot of like food options or?
1: Okay, so that's one. Like, Houston does have a large amount of Vietnamese which I'm, immigrants or Vietnamese diaspora but we were in a national park once like a taman negara somewhere in arkansas or some shit which is like any taman negara will be in the middle of nowhere right
2: yeah Yeah.
1: we were looking at places to eat and then we saw this place and we're like holy crap like after a day of hiking we want to go to this place and it was a vietnamese restaurant that had really really good pho again middle of nowhere and tiba tiba are the vietnamese restaurant yeah so it's kind of not embarrassing i want to say but like It's gotten me really thinking, oh wow, how have these other Southeast Asian countries or like how have their culinary heritages made such significant inroads across the world compared to Malaysia? Mm. Because when you look at it, Malaysian cuisine, Malaysian food, we consistently get ranked for being among the top cuisines in the world. Lonely Planet once did a ranking of the best countries for food and they lumped Malaysia and Indonesia together on the same number, number 11. CNN World Best did another ranking of the world's best food cultures. They ranked Thai as one of the top ones. And they mentioned Malaysia as being one of the significant influencers in Thai cuisine. Mm -hmm. And then there's this website called Rough Guides. They did a poll of all of their users. And Malaysian cuisine came up as one of the best cuisines in the world voted by their users. So again, when it comes to people who've been here or who know what Malaysian cuisine is, there's no doubt that malaysian cuisine is among the best but when it comes to general recognition there's none of it at all and so today we have amiro roslan here to discuss it with us thank you so much amiro for joining us today
2: thank you my pleasure absolutely glad to be here
1: (laughs) (laughs) before we like get into everything could you explain a little bit like when i invited you on for this episode you were noticeably ecstatic about doing this episode could you explain why that was
2: Like every Malaysian, I am in some way or another a massive food snob. But I'm also a food snob who's anti-food snob. And in my capacity as a journalist and a writer, I have written a number of things about food from embarrassing listicles, which hopefully are no longer on the internet, (laughs) to... Uh, love stories about chakwe teow, my favorite dish in the world. Mm-hmm. And Malaysian food is something that I feel very close to. But to be absolutely fair, I think every Malaysian has that relationship. Mm. What I do think is interesting that I can offer into a discussion like this is in the past two years, I've become a lot more mindful about trying to be a better cook, and sourcing better ingredients. And it's through that lens that I think I have a bit to say about Malaysian food. And I think it's quite surprising the kind of things that you discover when you go down a path like that. Mm.
1: Cool. So what we're going to do for this episode today is look at the history of Southeast Asian cuisines chronologically. And so I'll start at the very beginning to try and understand how Thai food, how Vietnamese food, how Even Filipino food became as big as they have been here in the U.S. And even in the U.K. to a certain extent. And then, Amirol, you can come in and explain why Malaysia is missing from this story. Yeah. Okay, so very beginning, if we're trying to answer why Thai food, Vietnamese food, Filipino food is as big as they are here in the U.S., I mean, the answer is actually really simple. (laughs) American imperialism and intervention in Southeast Asia. It really just boils down to that. And so you've had the history of American intervention in the Philippines in the early 1900s. You have America's presence in Vietnam in the 60s, which inadvertently exposed them to Thai cuisine as well. And following that, a bunch of the refugees as well as just general people looking for better opportunities in life, they would immigrate to America. Mm. And so today we have large sections of the immigrant population made up of immigrants from these countries. Yep, yep. So I think as of 2015 or so, mm mm-hmm. There are about 250,000 Thais living in the U.S. There are around 2.2 million Vietnamese living in the U.S. There are around 4.3 million Filipinos living in the U.S. And I think Filipinos are among the largest immigrant groups in the U.S. Yeah. But what's interesting, there are around a quarter of a million Thais. As a ratio of their population, there are actually... 10 times more Thai restaurants than Mexican restaurants in the U.S. Wow. Which I found very interesting and I started looking into it. And the reason for that has actually been this huge effort by the Thai government to export its food.
0: Into the U.S.?
1: Yeah, I don't know if you guys know this word, it's called (laughs) gastro-diplomacy. It's pretty much exporting your culture and your influence through food. And the Thai government spent a lot of time, effort, and money trying to accomplish this. Yeah. They almost made a cookie-cutter formula for Thai restaurants around the world. And so if you go to a Thai restaurant in the UK and have a Pad Thai there, and then you go to a Thai restaurant maybe in like Georgia and have a Pad Thai there, there's not too big a difference because of this effort to selaraskan Mm. Thai food by the Thai government.
2: Mm. And of course, it also helps that many elements of Thai food that we take for granted as being Thai food is sometimes artificial and like created for this purpose exactly. Like Pad Thai was not a dish that has traditional origins. It was invented in the 30s as a way to, according to some scholars, kind of like have a national dish for Thailand.
0: Really?
1: Huh, interesting.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's really worth looking into.
0: Oh wow, okay.
1: Wow, okay, so the next, I guess, big immigrant group were the Filipinos. Mm. who i don't think i've even actually had filipino food i don't know anything at all about filipino cuisine but mm-hmm. at one point Andrew zimmerman who is a very popular chef slash food host he hosted
2: bizarre foods yeah
1: yeah which I, we loved watching because of all the weird shit he couldn't eat durian was the one thing he drew the line at and said <laughs> no i can't do durian But anyway, Andrew Zimmerman called Filipino cuisine the next big thing. And Amiro, have you had Filipino food before? Because I haven't.
2: This is super interesting. I have had Filipino food. I've not had it at a Filipino restaurant. I've had it like home-cooked for me because I had an ex with a stepmother who is Filipina. Oh, wow. But in KL, one of my favorite places to go to is this abandoned dying mall in downtown KL that is home to most of the Filipino grocers because it's close to the big church at St. John's. Oh, okay. And
1: what would you order from there? At the grocery,
2: I'll buy like canned food for like friends of mine looking for ingredients. Like I recently bought my friend some Filipino spam. Like it wasn't for me, but <laughs> oh, it was super unusual apparently. Yeah. And they've got like their ranges of like adobo sauces and all that that's imported from the Philippines. Yeah. And that's not something you usually find in KL because even a country that's much closer to the Philippines, like Malaysia, somehow casually just doesn't think about the Philippines.
1: Yeah, which I guess makes sense. It's kind of like living in a place and then never going to any of the tourist sites. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, Filipino food has been described as among the next big trends in America. Yeah. The New York Times even wrote an article predicting that Filipino cuisine would enter the American mainstream pretty soon. And we have Jollibee, which is one of the (laughs) fastest growing fast food chains. Yeah and also currently already one of the largest fast food chains in the world, and that's entirely Filipino food. I think they have one in Malaysia already, somewhere in Sarawak or something, no?
2: I don't know about that. That's really interesting, actually.
1: Yeah, when we get to Vietnamese restaurants, there are around 9,000 Vietnamese restaurants in the US as of 2016, so there are probably more today. And as of 2018, there were 80 Malaysian restaurants, which... I guess makes sense, again, there are around 2.2 million Vietnamese here in the US compared to 30,000 Malaysians, so that discrepancy really makes sense, but excitingly, Papa Rich just opened its third branch in the U.S. Is this in New York? When? This is in Houston, actually. In Houston? Oh, okay. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so they already had their ones in New York, and then they just opened one in Houston, and we went, and it was amazing. And we're really excited about that. But yeah, that really is the state of Southeast Asian cuisines in the US right now. I mean, there are a lot of Thai restaurants because of Thai government efforts to export their gastro-diplomacy. There are a lot of Filipino cuisines because there are a bunch of Filipino immigrants that moved to the US after the US left the Philippines. There are a bunch of Vietnamese restaurants because the Vietnamese also did the same. But again, when it comes to international recognition, how the fuck did Singapore get its Michelin star before Malaysia did?
2: Well, the cynical answer to that is that the Michelin company is a money-making business and it makes a lot more sense to make money off of Singapore, which is significantly richer than Malaysia.
0: That makes a lot of sense. That
2: does
1: make sense? Yeah. But what's the non-cynical answer?
2: The non-cynical answer is also still somewhat cynical, which is uh, (laughs) Singapore's just so much better at marketing. And I don't like going into this take because in my opinion, it's a tired surface level take that. It's like a dead end. People just say Singapore's better at marketing, full stop, and then never actually investigate further.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It probably helps a lot that Singapore is happier to kind of like unite behind Singaporean soft power outside Malaysians tend to not have that same response. Malaysians tend to be kind of dismissive about, you know, this person's like eating Malaysian food in London, like Kuala London. Yeah. Sure, it's a joke to be paying £20 for nasi kerabu, but it's not like someone can find nasi kerabu for two pounds in the UK.
0: Yeah.
2: It's just not a thing. Yeah. Singapore also does really well with respect to the Michelin star, I think these sort of like award ceremony, award systems, because they know exactly how to play the game and they host these big organizations. Singapore also has an outsized presence on the 50 best restaurants list by San Pellegrino. Hmm. This list now has an Asian list. Okay. As opposed to just like a global list. Yeah. And when it started doing its Asian list, Yeah. one of the big surprises was that traditionally the stereotype is Japan shows up first in this list Mm -hmm. everyone goes to Japan talks about like how beautifully artisanal and crafted everything is yeah and then slowly it like spreads to the other big cities yeah But when Sanpil released their list, Singapore was like immediately super high on it. I think Singapore and Bangkok may have the most number of restaurants in like a specific city on the top 50 Asia list. Malaysia does not have a single restaurant on the list, I believe. It's actually worth noting that Bangkok's most highly rated restaurant is an Indian restaurant and not a Thai restaurant.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, it's Gagan, the very famous one by the chef Gagan Anand. there's an episode of Chef's Table about this restaurant in Bangkok. And yeah, it's an Indian restaurant by an Indian migrant chef. Well, an expat chef in this case, because he was like a wealthy man before he went to Bangkok.
1: Interesting. And, yeah. What list was this on?
2: This is the most starred restaurant on the Michelin star rank. Oh, wow. It's also on the San Pellegrino top 50.
0: Miro, just for the sake of the audiences, yeah. would you mind describing like why it's called a Michelin star?
2: okay that's an excellent question and something that i think we all take for granted including myself. (laughs) so michelin yeah or if you want to be like super pretentious in french Michelin. (laughs) michelon
0: but i'm not gonna do that
2: (laughs) releases a list every year it's not it's not a list it's a restaurant review book it's a guidebook effectively of restaurants that have their endorsement um it's super exclusive Famously, critics keep it super secret. They absolutely thrive off of secrecy and don't just go around bragging that they are doing food reviews. Michelin, of course, is a tire company. So the history of this is it was a way to drum up advertising money and also to get people to buy cars so they could travel to places because they had good food. The stars are a quality indicator. There are five rankings. I could be wrong on this, but there are the stars, which is one star, two star, three star third one being the highest and the most exclusive. Mm. And then there is just listed, which means it has no stars. It hasn't, like, impressed them enough to be given a star, but it has impressed them enough to be mentioned. Right. Lastly, there is the Bib Goman, which is a special award. Is their, like, consolation prize for Mm. things that don't quite fit the Michelin star criteria, because although stars have been given to hawker food and, like, less... Yeah. fine dining establishments. Yeah, For the most part, fine dining is what they're trying to go for because they are looking for atmosphere and right. gourmand service and stuff like that.
0: Interesting. So when Singapore got its Michelin star rating for their street food, was that considered the first time or have they done that before?
2: Michelin has given street food and street food equivalent things like stalls and such awards before. Mm. I believe there's that thing about how there is a particularly famous udon stall in Japan somewhere that has a $10 dish that's like Michelin-starred, and that was fairly unique at the time. Yeah. By the time Michelin released its Singapore guidebook, this was slightly less uncommon, but still noteworthy enough. Yeah. And also helped on by the fact that the excitement that it built gave Singaporean media an opportunity to kind of like celebrate that Hainanese chicken rice is the best and also belongs exclusively to Singapore.
1: So I have a question about that, Amiro. So on a bunch of these international cuisine rankings where Singapore makes the list but Malaysia doesn't, like to what extent is Singapore interchangeable with Malaysia? Like to what extent is Singaporean food different from Malaysian food? Because I don't know, we all have I think most of us have been to Singapore yeah. and most of us have had Singaporean food. And isn't it just more expensive Malaysian food?
2: I'm going to say something controversial here. And I think Malaysians <laughs> uh. have a bug <laughs> up their ass about that topic. A little okay. too much. Go on. Let's go. Malaysians like to see themselves as being distinctly unique. Having this like Malaysian exceptionalism. And as a result, it makes people like aggressively obnoxious when it comes to authenticity and food. And our response to Singapore about this is just that Singapore is better at marketing and Singapore doesn't really have the same length of time and heritage that Malaysians do. But is that actually the case? Uh When it comes to dishes that originate with ethnic Chinese groups, they've been in Singapore as long as they've been in the Malayan Peninsula. It seems to me like an intentionally obtuse way of rendering things by somehow erasing the fact that Singapore has always been continuously populated, in the same time that colonialism and imperialism affected the dynamics of race in Malaysia and how that's influenced our food.
0: Mm. Yeah. Fair.
2: Our food doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah. Is Singaporean food less enjoyable to me as a Malaysian? I would say yes. Yes. Yeah, Would I say Singapore doesn't have a right to claim certain dishes? Mm. I think it's fun to kind of like partake in that outrage, but it sort of ignores the fact that food, both in terms of recipes, dishes, as well as the consumption of it, the concept of food as how we people appreciate culture and food is an evolving thing. Yeah. 50 years from now, for all we know, Singapore will have successfully laid claim to nasi lemak. Yeah. And 100 years from now, maybe even all forms of laksa, including Selawak laksa.
0: (laughs) 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 That's what we did to Rendang, no? Because Rendang is originally Indonesian.
2: Yeah, I mean, is probably the most controversial aspect because <laughs> Malaysians are just like, no, 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 it's, it's Malaysian. <laughs> yeah. But just about everything that's Malay comes from the wider Nusantara. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And for some reason, Malaysians are happy to dismissively claim that Singapore has no heritage because, you know, Singapore used to be part of Malaysia while also using that same attitude to dismiss Bruneian food, even though Brunei was never part of Malaysia or Malaya. <laughs> So, like, Malaysians like to go, our food exists in a vacuum, and that's not true. Yeah. For example, since we were talking about Thai food earlier, Yeah. Pad Thai is a distant cousin of Cha Kui yes, I yes. think we could, <laughs> we could see that. The word for noodles in Thai is, in fact, Kui Tiao. Hmm. Kui Tiao is the word for all noodles in the Thai language. Hmm. We have a much closer relationship to Thailand because of our geographic proximity, because of the way certain states in modern-day Malaysia used to belong to Imperial Siam. Yep. There's so much more nuance about this, and I feel like the problem with Malaysian food is that to even like talk about it, you have to bake in some nuance, like our racial politics, yet ignore all other forms of nuance, such as... Our relationship with Indonesia, our relationship with East Malaysia as distinct forms of cuisine, yeah. our relationship with Thailand and like the northern mm. part of Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah Yeah, well like even in my initial research on the other Southeast Asian cuisines and their history, it seemed really difficult to explore the evolution, the development, the proliferation of those cuisines from their social, cultural political history. And I guess that's the same problem we're facing with Malaysian food?
2: It's probably a big deal. And the more we want to make Malaysian food a presence on a global scale, the more we have to unpack the fact that our history or the approach we've taken to food and culture and history has taken a very myopic view. It's been quite narrow. It's always been like, what's going on in my grandmother's kitchen. Yeah. Extremely valid, extremely important, and the sort of thing that you do want to pay attention to. But when it comes to wider context, we're not unique in doing that. Every culture reviews its grandmother who aga-aga some ingredients that happens in all forms of Mexican food and Italian food.
0: Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, yeah. so when it comes to just understanding where we are today... Okay, so Singapore, we've, I think, explored that enough. Thai, we've explored that enough. We're still trailing on Filipino and on Vietnamese Mm -hmm. cuisines in ways that we can't just chalk up to immigration or we can't just chalk up to marketing. So what's happening there? What lessons can we take if we want Malaysia to be recognized or we want Malaysian food to be recognized to the extent that these other cuisines have?
2: I think it helps a lot that... with those two examples that you gave of Thai and Filipino food, those are cuisines that exist in a sort of like cuisine group of its own. You wouldn't really say Thai food is the exact same thing as Cambodian or Vietnamese or Burmese. Yeah, It's sort of like a monolithic example in itself which is something that the Philippines also does because Filipino food is pretty much unique to the Philippines whereas with Malaysian food we are constantly competing with Singapore because of our insecurity (laughs) and when we're not we're competing with Indonesia because of all their shared heritage and the culture. One day I would like to see this confusion or the laziness on the part of white food media to kind of like untangle this mess and show more nuance I think that will happen someday because if you think of it now, if you went to any major city in the United States, Mm -hmm. you would definitely offend someone if, you said a Mexican dish was the same as a Colombian dish or was the same as a Venezuelan dish. Yeah. But if you did that in the US with, say, Malaysian food and you had Singapore laksa and Singapore nasi lemak next to Penang chakwe teow, it hasn't reached that point yet. I personally think it will. And I think what's going on right now in food media in the US, where there's more of a discussion about not erasing identities and showing more respect to people of colour and their cuisines. Yeah. I think that will really supercharge this discussion and I've noticed a few pretty positive signs.
1: Such mm-hmm.
2: as? One is that on bonappetit.com yeah. probably the trendiest food media site there is. Yep. Bon Appetit released their New York City 100 list for 2020. The 2021 one isn't out yet, I believe. Yeah. A Malaysian restaurant in downtown Manhattan ranked number six on that list. Oh, wow. was like the best breakfast spot if you were living in Manhattan and you had like, a specific like savoury craving. Oh. What's the name of this restaurant? This is Kopitiam in the Lower East Side. I have not been there, but I've passed by it a number of times when I was in New York. It's wow.
0: Actually, I feel like Malaysian food, like our dishes... What we're known for is nasi lemak and roti chanai. But then I also feel like a lot of Malaysian dishes are just a copy of other national dishes like kway Tiao, which is originally Pad Thai. And then roti chanai, which is originally from south of India, I think, like Chennai. Chennai, yeah. But yeah, like a lot of our foods are like taken from a lot of different parts of Southeast Asia as well. So we don't really have anything too specific for us to stand out amongst something like pho. And plus, like all these other countries around us, they're quite homogenous, are they not? Like Vietnam, Thailand, and we're a mix of a lot of different things. I think because of the diversity of our food, it's hard to niche into just one, to kind of narrow it down as Malaysian food. I don't know, like when people say Malaysian food, besides nasi lemak, what's the first thing you think of?
1: Ruti Chana, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. Like when it comes to the most recognizable Malaysian foods, is the ones that
0: aren't from Malaysia.
1: <laughs> that yeah, we've drawn a lot of the inspiration from right. external cultures and traditions. Yeah. But I don't know. I think in the same way that Amiro was making the point that like Singaporean food has become its own by virtue of its unique political, cultural, geographical history. I think these foods are uniquely Malaysian in the way that these other places have been. Even if we've drawn on external cultures to arrive at their current renditions.
0: Okay,
2: fair. Yeah, I mean, if we looked at it from the sense that what has Malaysian food produced since the Federation of Malaysia (laughs) in recent years as as a political entity of Malaysia with its racial composition as we see today. The one thing that I think of that's like the most common thing that you can find everywhere would be two dishes one of which could not be an example of a national dish because it's a family burger. Burgers, sorry, like, like, like it or not, Shit. we'd get laughed out if we used a burger. The second dish, and I know people are going to hate that I say this, is Melayu Kui Basah with cheese. Sorry, that's the only invention. (laughs) That's the only invention that is uniquely like a modern Malaysian dish that has its influences from existing heritages, but it's a creature of today.
1: And I guess the point you're making is those are hardly things that we want to represent Malaysia.
2: (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Those aren't exactly the stars you want, like leading
0: the way. Okay, so like my general observation is that when my friends come here from abroad like they want to try malaysian food i don't give them anything too heavy because like so we have curry right and the thais have curry indians have curry but it's for a special day right yeah but like normally they wouldn't have anything too heavy but for us like that's normal that's like every day but yeah, maybe that could be another factor. I'm not sure.
2: I think that's a really good point. And the fact that Malaysian food is so heavy and we also seem to have an annoying fixation about portion sizes. We need to have supersized massive amounts of food because it's a culture of excess and it's...
1: Well, that's not unique to Malaysia though, is it? i, that's I not unique I, Malaysia, I, live, no. I live in Texas. <laughs> I mean...
2: Yeah, you live in Texas. I mean, <laughs> it's supersized everything. Yeah. yeah but it's not really like the most accessible thing
1: is it well if we're saying that more accessible cuisines are the ones that are lighter at the same time if we think about foods that do grab attention there are also much very heavy foods like soul food cuisine like yeah in the american south you have the gumbos you have your crayons you have your jambalayas you have your barbecue briskets and those are not light dishes to say the least but they are internationally esteemed to a certain degree like which country doesn't have some form of a texas barbecue restaurant or something yeah i don't know i would want to disagree with the notion that because our food is heavy that heavy is the reason for inaccessibility
2: the way i'd see it is more something that malay food needs to actively reckon with both with menus locally in Malaysia as well as how we present Malay food outside Malaysia is in my opinion Malay food is possibly extremely unhealthy oh yeah we don't really have vegetables as part of our cuisine and when we do have vegetables it's always as like a kerabu kind of thing or like a very meager side garnish to mm. a fried chicken
1: actually um, I noticed this like when I was trying to take a vegetarian friend around oh. Malaysia I realized it was really difficult to find vegetarian food vegetarian food that's not Indian. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. like, even like yeah. Malay vegetable dishes I do like oyster sauce mm. ataupun yep. some sort of meat product. Like, they'll put chicken stock mm. in it or something.
2: Yeah, and that's not something that if you try to explain it to uh, a Warung it's quite a difficult concept to kind of get through. That when you mean vegetarian, you don't mean is visibly free of meat. Yes. <laughs> like, you don't want any meat in there at all. Yep, yep, yep. And yep. S- sorry, like yeah. fish is meat too. With your friends that you're taking out. Yeah. So exactly. That's difficult. Like I don't think any cuisine should be catering to the white gaze or trying to be international. But I personally see that as a major obstacle for yeah. Malaysian food. Mm because it's not exactly the most vegetarian-friendly cuisine. It's not balanced at all. It's protein and carbs. Yeah. And that carb is most often
1: white rice. I guess there is vegetarian Chinese food, huh?
2: Yeah. There is. And for religious reasons as well, yeah.
1: But there's no vegetarian Malay food. Or very, very susanitary.
2: Yeah, I would like for it to be more of a thing. And I think moving forward, it will be. Because like it or not, we are dealing with 50 years of prosperity since independence. Where we started eating a lot more mm-hmm. and eating a lot better, mm-hmm. but we've also been eating without stopping, and that's why we have like <laughs> far worse diabetes rates yeah. than any other country in Southeast Asia.
1: So we've started off this conversation by like exploring other Southeast Asian countries, their cuisines, their cultures, their history, and how they've gotten to where they've gotten. And then we've pivoted to Malaysian food, Malaysian cuisine to identify where our shortcomings have been relative to our neighbors and so I guess just to wrap things up Amirul if you had to put your money on where do you see things going for Malaysian Mm. food in terms of international recognition what do you think is going to happen
2: I think we're in an exciting time when it comes to discussions about food especially in media both in the form of video because of like the globalization of YouTube videos of cooking It's also an exciting time to be writing about food and kind of like unpacking it from a more in-depth viewpoint. We've always had really talented Malaysian food writers, but the batch of food writers who are informed by more modern food writing is producing some really exciting stuff. There's a Malaysian food website, perreo.my, which I think has fantastic, clever takes on recipes. They've got some really interesting food writing I think at a time when globally, English language food media is wrangling with an evolving discussion about your culture be represented through food, Malaysians need to ditch the insecurity of culinary disrespect mm-hmm. and acknowledge it more as currently culinary neglect. Mm-hmm. And the best way to deal with neglect is to kind of like pitch your voice out there And your voice needs to not just be snarkily insulting Malays (laughs) who go to London and pay for 20 pound nasi dagang. Right. Food is consumed in so many different ways. Malaysian food is consumed in so many different ways. Mm. It is naturally going to change. And to have a puritanical, obnoxious focus on authenticity, which if you kind of like unpacked, might not even be that authentic to begin with, but just like what you were told was authentic. I think we'll see Malaysia kind of like take its time in the spotlight.
0: Mm.
1: Cool. I guess we've reached the end of our discussion today. Mm -hmm. Amiro, I know you've been working on an album. Yes. Would you mind sharing a bit about it with our listeners?
2: So in this past lockdown, I have spontaneously decided to pick up learning to produce music. Mm. Uh, Despite the fact that I had actually never touched an instrument. Like I took classes (laughs) as a child, but like I forgot (laughs) all of that and I was just like, I'm doing something and I'm gonna have an album by my birthday and my first album and the summer afternoons is now available on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Yay. a bunch of different Woo-hoo. services. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. I'm so excited. It's <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh it's it's a lot of fun.
1: So I was like while I was doing my research on this episode, I was listening to Amiro's album and I honestly have to say like dude that is it the album is totally my vibe. Like, I absolutely love the music. But also, if Thank like, you. if there were no consequences to my actions, with no shame, I would have definitely just taken the music and used it for this podcast. Like, I would have absolutely done that and felt no regret about it.
2: I can actually tell you that if you were to do that for this episode, there would be no consequences. <Okay>.
1: I can okay. fit out yeah. with my distributors right now. We're
2: we're
0: gonna yeah. we're gonna end okay. the episode with one more track. Okay, of
1: your cool. Fade out okay. to music. <laughs> Fail... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, yeah. Amiro, for joining Thank us you, today. It was really great to have you, you today. Thank you.
2: Like this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for that as well.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the He Says, She Says, They Say podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please feel free to drop us an inbox at inbox at he she they say dot com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at he she they say underscore the theme song for this episode is called back in the bucket produced by our guest Amirul Ruslan. If you like the track, check him out on Spotify by searching HH the Archduke till next time. Bye.